0: Uh, so I do wonder if you've ever thought, can I really be sure what's going to happen in the future? How, how are things actually going to unfold uh, in the future in general, or perhaps in particular when it comes to your relationship with God? I many of you here today, you're probably like, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I get that I'm a Christian now, I'm pretty confident of that, I'm quite sure of that, but, but how, what's actually going to happen in the end? Can I be sure about what's going to happen in the end? Really, that's the big emphasis of Romans 8 trying to give the Christian who's put their trust in Jesus confidence as they think about the very end of times when they come face to face with God and we can think well, what's going to happen when we get to the end I mean sure things are sorted between me and God now I feel that but but, but what happens if I if I keep struggling with that particular sin or what happens uh, if the burden of my suffering just gets really great and it's really hard for me to hold on to Jesus Or increasingly in our culture, it seems like it's going to get harder and harder to to be a Christian, perhaps? What happens if I just lack the courage to make a stand for Jesus? I just don't feel that boldness. What what happens if I start to be kind of confronted by all these doubts that I just never anticipated? Can I really be sure of what's going to happen in the end? And what I want you to hear today, loud and clear from these verses from Romans chapter 8, uh, is that if you're a Christian, right, you're someone who's put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're trusting and following him, if you're a Christian, uh, you can indeed be completely secure. Completely secure now and forever uh, in God's love and favour. That's what Paul wants you to know from this passage. You are completely secure both now and forever uh, in God's love and favour. Are completely secure in God's favour because of the work of Christ, completely secure in God's love because of the love of Christ. We're going to spend uh, our time unpacking those two points. So first, uh, in verses 31 to 34, you'll see, uh, well, you'll start to see if you don't see already, uh, that you're completely secure in God's favour because of the work of Christ. Have a look in, oh, uh, uh, actually, look like, yeah, I guess in verses 31 to 34, the big kind of picture image is that Paul's trying to transport us into God's heavenly courtroom. So there's all this language about law courts and charges and condemnation and that kind of thing. I so was look in verse 31. Paul asks the first of five questions. We've got bigger questions next week. There are five big questions in this passage. He asks the first of five questions. What then shall we say, Paul says, in response to these things? What? Well, what are these things? These things there, I think, refers to all the wonderful blessings of salvation that Paul's been unpacking in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul's uh, been unpacking those things at length uh, from chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of chapter 8. And he's just summarized them, if you were here last week. Uh, but you can look back in your Bibles in verses 28 to 30. He's just, uh, he's just summarized these things, right, the, the wonders of God's salvation. And so here he's saying, what shall, we, what shall we conclude then? He's really saying, well, what shall we say in response to all these incredible blessings of salvation that God's given us? Have a look. He says, we should conclude that God is for us. If God is for us, Paul says, who can be against us? If God is for us, if God really is, Romans 8, 28, if God really is working through all things for our good, To conform us to the glorious image of His Son. If God really is for us, then who can possibly be against us? Paul says. Now, some of you hear that question and you think, but doesn't Paul get it? There's all sorts of things against us, right? In fact, Paul's just and Paul does know that he's not stupid. There are all sorts of things against us. Remember earlier in the chapter, uh, he talked about the fact that we, as Christians, as we live in this world, uh, we have to share in the sufferings of Christ now. Before we share in his glories in the future. And he said sometimes the the, the weight of those sufferings is so great uh, that that we just groan under it. Where we long for Jesus to come back and set us free from all the sufferings that we're experiencing. Paul knows that. He's about to unpack a, a whole other list of things that can be against us. Suffering and hardship and famine and persecution, all sorts of things against us. When Paul says, uh, is there, uh, the, if God is for us, not, uh, who can be against us? He's not saying literally that there's no one against us. Uh, but he is saying that no matter who or what might be against us, no matter how strong or intense their opposition might be, uh, they cannot stop our sovereign God from working out his good purposes in our lives. That's his point. If the sovereign God of all creation is on your side and working for you, then in the end, as painful as it might be, in the end, it doesn't matter who or what is against you. Because they're not going to be able to stop God working out His purposes in His in your life, in His world. So God is for us, uh, despite uh, what the circumstances of our life might sometimes seem. And the question, uh, of course, then comes, how can you really know that God is for you? Paul kind of says God is for you, but how can you know that? How can you know that that God is committed to working for your good? Not just now, but, but to the very end of your life. Well, verse 32, I think Paul addresses that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How do you know that God is for you in your life? As you think, how do you know that God's working for your good? In the end, I think you've really only got two options. You can measure God's goodness uh, according to the circumstances of your life, or you can measure God's goodness by the cross of Christ. Those are your two big options. All right, most of us tend towards measuring God's goodness according to the circumstances of our life. So the basic equation is if life is good, then God is good. So marriage is going well, God is good. Kids are healthy and, and kicking goals at school, God is good. Finances are in a reasonable place, you get the drift. Careers going well, just got a promotion, health's not bad. All, right, all these things we say life is good, therefore God is good. Uh, Of course, the problem with that is often life isn't that good. We've just unpacked a whole lot of issues in Romans. Uh, And so many people who even profess to be Christians have this gnawing doubt about God's goodness. Because you live your life with life as good and therefore God is good. How can you really know that God is for you? Even when life sucks, how can you know? Paul says you've got to measure God's goodness not by the circumstances of your life, but by the cross of Christ. In the ever kind of changing circumstances of your life, it's the cross of Christ that is the unchanging uh, reminder, assurance of God's goodness. If God was willing, while you were still a sinner... While you were rejecting him, if God was willing to give his one and only son for you, to, to pay the full penalty for all your sins, then you can be sure that he's on your side. You can be sure that he's working for your good. You can be sure that in the end he'll give you everything that he's promised you. He will give you all things. So what are these all things Paul says, uh, God is going to give us these all things. God, uh, Well, first, uh, all things. God's uh, going to give us everything he knows that we need uh, to achieve his good purposes in our life. We saw last week, his good purposes, verses 29 and 30. What are his good purposes aren't to give you perfect health. His good purposes aren't to give you perfect happiness. But his good purposes are to give you perfect holiness. To conform you to the image of His Son, uh, who perfectly reflects His glory. That's got good purpose in His life, uh, uh, in your life, if you're a Christian. And Paul says here that the that Paul's saying here that the God is is graciously going to give you all things, everything that you need in your life, to conform you to the image of Christ, His Son. So you remember, back in verse 28, Paul said, uh, We know that in all things, same phrase, all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Right, so that's what Paul's saying, right? not that all things are good, but that God is working through all things. And he's giving you everything that you... Uh, I guess he's saying that the, the, uh, for the Christian, the gift of God's Son on the cross uh, really assures you that God is working for you, not just at the cross, but in every aspect of your life. Right? That, that everything that you experience in your life is a gift from God for your good, even if you don't get it. You don't understand why God would think that that's a gift for you, right? Right? But the cross assures you that if God is allowing something into your life, it is for your good. Uh, And it's for him to achieve his purposes in your your life. So that's the first thing about this this kind of all things. God's graciously going to give us all things, Paul says. He's going to give you everything you need to conform you to the image of his son. But second, uh, it means that God's going to give you uh, everything that he's promised you. All the things that he's promised you. Uh, if you've got your Bible open, you might want to flick back to earlier in the chapter or scan back, depending on how small the uh, font is. Uh, you, you remember Paul said earlier in this chapter that by faith in Christ, uh, it's not just that we've been justified or declared innocent or that kind of but God has actually adopted us into his family. We're children of God, Paul said. He had a great section about being filled with the Spirit of God and being able to cry out to God as Abba Father. And as his children, uh, Paul said this back in, uh, in verse 17 as well, as his children, we get to share in the family inheritance. Right? The, the inheritance which is everything that belongs to God our Father. And of course, God our Father, uh, how much of the world did he make? He made all things. Therefore, all things belong to God our Father. So in the end, our inheritance as children of God is everything. Paul said this back in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. You can flick if you're a really quick flicker. Romans 4, verse 13, Paul's unpacking God's promises to Abraham. And he says there in Romans 4, verse 13, God promised Abraham that he would inherit the world. That was God's promise to Abraham. And Paul's saying that that as those who by faith in Christ have joined Abraham's family, have joined God's family and become uh, children of God, uh, we also will inherit the world. Not this kind of broken and messed up world. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't want to inherit this world. Like It's pretty ordinary. Right, But the world that God is going to gloriously remake and reshape, the world that's promised in Revelation chapter 22, the new heavens and new earth, where there's no more mourning and crying and pain, that's the all things that ultimately we as children of God will inherit. And we'll inherit it not because there's something special about us. Notice that Paul says that God is graciously going to give us all things. It's a gift of His grace. It's not something that you've earned, uh, but just something you have by virtue of his grace and, and becoming a child of God. Uh, so God's gracious gift of his son, his one and only son, uh, is your unchanging assurance that God is for you. you. You must have that kind of stake in the ground in your life or you'll always doubt God's goodness. It, it's the cross that assures you that, as, that you live your life under God's divine favour, because sometimes the circumstances of your life might make you think that, that God's angry with me or God's somehow got something against me. It's the cross that assures you that God is working at his good purposes in your life and that in the end, he'll give you everything that he's promised you as his child. So maybe you're convinced that God is working for you and you're convinced that he's doing that now uh, but you're wondering, well, what, what happens in the end? You know What happens when I come face-to-face with God on Judgment Day? Can I really be sure that I'm going to get a favorable verdict from God? Can I be sure of that? So look in verse 33, Paul says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will bring any charge? The implicit answer uh, is no one. Is like you can kind of hear that that's the, the answer that Paul's kind of expecting. Why, though? Why can't anyone bring a charge against a Christian? Well, first, Paul says, because we're among those whom God has chosen. Maybe you were here last week, maybe verses 29 and 30. You could scan back to that. But Paul's saying we're the people that God foreknew. He knew before the creation of the world. Before you were even knitted together in your mother's womb, God set his affection on you and chose you to be one of his people. He predestined you. Before you, you were even born to be conformed to the image of Christ, his son. He called you by the power of his spirit, by the preaching of his gospel. He called you to himself. He justified you by the precious blood of his son shed on the cross. He's already committed to glorifying you, making you like Christ, his son. In His grace, God has committed Himself to you uh, before the beginning of time. Uh, So you really think that on Judgment Day, He's going to allow someone to bring a charge against you. That's what Paul's saying. Who could possibly bring a charge uh, against someone that God has been committed to for all of eternity? No one. It's only reinforced at the end of verse 33. Notice Paul says, uh, It is God who justifies. So you imagine the scene, like you, you, it's judgment day, you're, you're fronting up in God's heavenly law court and God is sitting there on the benches, judge. Uh, he's perfect in every way. Think Isaiah 6, Revelation 4. He's holy, holy, holy. And yet you have nothing to fear in his court. Absolutely nothing to fear. Because the God sitting on the bench is the same God who's already declared you to be innocent before him through faith in Christ. The verdict that he's given is that you are justified, that you are innocent, that you are completely right with him. There's absolutely nothing to be sorted out. So no one can bring a charge against you in God's court. No one. And not even Satan, actually. I, I, I mention that, but sometimes I'm, I'm talking with people and they have a kind of idea that because the name Satan means uh, the accuser, uh, that on the final day, that Satan's somehow going to be cross-examining people in God's court, that he's going to be bringing accusations against us, charges against us. Right? That's just not true. It's, it's, very, it's unbiblical. right? Yes, Satan can accuse me. In my daily life, Satan can come to me and kind of whisper in my ear, as it were, Aaron, look at your sin. Look at how ugly it is. How could God ever accept someone like you? Jesus' death on the cross couldn't possibly be sufficient to cleanse you and make you fit for God's presence. You may as well give up on being a Christian. right? Like Satan can come and accuse us, can't he? But he can't accuse us before God. He can't accuse us before God. Right if you remember, we, we uh, uh, had a series in the book of Revelation a, a little while back. Uh, you might want to read it again. Revelation chapter 12. In, in Revelation 12, uh, verse 10, John sees a vision of Satan the accuser being hurled out of God's heavenly court. Uh, and the reason he's hurled out is because the blood of Jesus has been shed on the cross uh, and there, he's got no reason to be there anymore. Because the only thing Satan could accuse you of is of your sin. The only thing he could say is that your sin deserves death and your sin has already been condemned in the death of Jesus on the cross so he's got no reason to be there. God's cast him out of heaven. He cannot appear before God and bring any charge against you at all. The only person who is in heaven is the one who died for you and prays on your behalf. We'll get to that in a second. You have nothing to fear in God's court. The only person with any authority is your Lord Jesus Christ. So when it comes to your case before God, as one who's put their faith in the death of Christ on the cross, it's important to know that the evidence has been fully considered. You know, it's not like on Judgment Day that God's going to be like, oh, I hadn't considered that bit of evidence. You know, Someone rushes into the court with a, oh, did you know they did this? No, no, no. The evidence has been fully considered. God knows it all. The charges have been laid. In your sin, you deserve death. But most importantly, the penalty has been paid. Christ has paid the full penalty for your sins. So the verdict in your case, as one who trusts in Christ, the verdict is certain. God has already declared the verdict. You are justified in his court. Case closed. That's the assurance that Paul's wanting you to have here. So in verse 34, he drives it home. Another kind of related question. He says, uh, who then is the one who condemns? Now, of ourselves, in our sin, we all deserve to be condemned before God. None of us are perfect. But remember the start of the chapter, Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus no condemnation why? because of verses 3 and 4 God has already condemned your sin in Christ's death on the cross so for you as one who's been united with Christ by faith it's impossible for you to be condemned impossible, right? the only one who can condemn you is God he is righteous and true and he's already condemned your sin fully and finally in Christ so He's are not going to double down and punish you too Right, the, the death of his son was sufficient to deal with the full condemnation for your sins. So if you're one who put your faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, there won't be any surprises on Judgment Day. Well, you, you can be sure of that. And notice what Paul says here. He says that, that Christ, this is verse 34, Christ didn't just die, but he was raised. But right, he was raised, demonstrating once and for all uh, that the work was done, you see. he died once for all for the sins uh, and his death was sufficient to deal with those sins. Uh, and notice how Christ's death and resurrection in verse 34 are in the past tense. Christ died and was raised. That part of his work is absolutely finished. Other parts of the Bible talk about how he's ascended into heaven and now he's seated at the right hand of God. His work is done. He knows that. It's what Jesus cried out from the cross. John 19, it is finished. The penalty for your sin has been paid in full. So you can really rest. You can rest. There's no penalties left to pay anymore. There's no sacrifices left to offer. As if you can somehow add to Jesus' death on the cross. There's no condemnation left to bear. You're free. It's finished. It's done. It's paid in full. And I said before, right now, even as you sit here today, if you're a Christian, Christ is praying for you. Look at that. Christ intercedes for us at the right hand of God. I don't really know what Jesus is saying to his Father. Along the lines of, I imagine, this one's one of ours. This one's one of the ones that that we knew before the foundation of the world and that you sent me to die for. Uh, And it's justified in me. And it's going to be conformed to my image and adopted into our family. And like, uh, there's no condemnation left for them. And the Father said, Yeah, yeah. You can be sure that Christ's prayer for you is going to be answered. It's going to be successful. Look where he is. He's not kind of outside the, the door of God's court, banging, kind of, you know, can I, can I get a hearing? No, he's at the right hand of God. In the position of real honour and authority, he's got his Father's ear. Right, His prayers are guaranteed to be heard and answered. His prayers are guaranteed to be successful. Right? This is the, the wonderful assurance that Paul wants you to have. Not have those kind of nagging doubts about the future. And so now, as we're going to sing uh, after after I finish, uh, that before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great High Priest whose name is Love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on His hands. My name is written on His heart. I know that while in heaven He stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So Paul's big point in verses 31 to 34 is that if you're a Christian, you can know that because of the work of Christ, uh, you are completely secure in God's favour. It's not just uh, that the slate has been wiped clean, but that you stand before God uh, under his divine favour and blessing, guaranteed uh, that he's working for your good now and forever. Uh, and then in verses 35 to 39, Paul wants uh, you to know that you're completely secure in God's love uh, because of the love of Christ. Much more brief on these verses. Uh, looking at, In verse 35, Paul starts with uh, the last question in, in this passage. Uh, what sh- uh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So there's a sense in which he's switching gears here from our legal security in God's court uh, to our relational security in God's love. Uh, but because Paul's just been speaking about the work of Christ, it's interesting he starts here by not speaking about uh, the love of God, but about the love of Christ. Uh, but look at the end in verse thirty-nine, the end of this little unit in verse thirty-nine. He says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God uh, that is found or that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's a little bit like for Paul, God's love and Christ's love are kind of inextricably linked, but they're not exactly the same. That's a little bit tricky, but I, I think it does make sense if you think about it. For where is it that we ultimately see God's love? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It's verse 32 that we were just dealing with. So we see God's love ultimately in the giving of Christ on the cross. Right? Which is also where we see Christ's love. Right? Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. So God's love and Christ's love are inextricably linked, but not exactly the same. Where do we ultimately experience God's love? Well, it's in being united with Christ and being secure in His love. So really the big point in verses 35 to 39 is that because by faith, you as a Christian have been brought into this unbreakable union with Christ, you're absolutely secure in His love, then you're automatically absolutely secure in God's love. I think that's Paul's logic. A secure in the face of absolutely any suffering. Look at verse 35. Paul says, Shall trouble or hardship or or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall shall any of these sufferings separate us from God's love? Of course not. Of course not. Paul's just said that God's working through all those things for your good. Now of course Paul's point in verse 35 is not to kind of give an exhaustive list of sufferings. So you kind of like tick off the list and go, oh Paul didn't mention this type of suffering. You know, I've got this really bad depression or anxiety or whatever it is. And so maybe that can separate me from God's love. His point is not to give an exhaustive list. His point is uh, that that no matter what suffering you're experiencing as a Christian, no matter how intense it is or what type it is or or what amount of suffering it is, absolutely no suffering can separate you from God's love. That's his point. Not to give you kind of an exhaustive checklist of sufferings. His point is to promote assurance. Not to get you kind of looking for the loopholes that maybe promote doubt, right? Nothing can separate you from God's love and not even really intense persecution. Paul mentions persecution in verse 35, but he kind of zooms in on it in verse 36. You remember in verse 32, Paul said that God kind of gave Christ on the cross. Literally, it's kind of that he handed him over to his death on the cross. And it's actually, it's probably an allusion to Isaiah chapter 53, that, that passage about God's suffering servant, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who's had it over to die for, the sins, uh, for, for our sins. Uh, and in verse 7 in that passage, uh, we read, Isaiah says, uh, I'm going to substitute, so Christ uh, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's verse 36, right, in Romans 8. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So as Christians, we we follow in the footsteps of Christ, the one who was led out like a lamb to the slaughter. But despite that, Christ didn't uh, feel the need to defend himself. before uh, Before this unjust and painful suffering, he didn't have to open his mouth. Why? Because he was secure in the love of God his Father. 1 Peter 2, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He knew that in the end he was going to be vindicated. He was going to be victorious. He was secure in his father's love, despite being led out like a lamb uh, to be slaughtered. And then in verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44 verse 22, which uh, is from the context of God's people suffering in exile in Babylon. They're, they're away from the home that God had promised them in the promised land, uh, suffering greatly. And the quote is, For your sake we face death all day long. Uh, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You see what Paul's kind of saying. He's saying, look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see how he suffered uh, when he left his ultimate home uh, to, to die for you. And look at how God's people in the Old Testament suffered when they weren't in their ultimate home. When they're away from the land that God promised them. And should it really surprise you that when you're not in your ultimate home, Paul's said that everything's heading towards this glorious home as children of God, this wonderful inheritance. And so should it surprise you that as you live your lives in this world that is broken and messed up and where people will blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus, should it surprise you that you might suffer greatly painful and unjust suffering? Look at who you're following in the footsteps of, Paul says. But like Christ, like God's people throughout the ages, you can know that no suffering, no intensity of persecution or amount of persecution can separate you from the love of God. In fact, in verse 37, Paul says, No, uh, in all these things, all things again, all the suffering and persecution we might experience, uh, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Him who loved us there, I take to to be God, as I think Paul's saying, because God showed his love for us by sending his son to die for us, and then ultimately we can be sure that we're going to end up on the winning side. We're we're the winning team. We're the victors. We're, We're going to conquer the suffering of this world and enter into glory. That's important. I think lots of Christians today are very very anxious about living in a way that's against the flow of our culture. I understand that. Right? Increasingly, as a Christian, you, you, you probably just want to keep your head down for fear if you put it up, you might get kicked or something. Right? And if you feel that kind of anxiety, I, I hope verse 37 encourages you. Often as Christians, uh, now maybe, I mean, there are some people who are just legitimately jerks. Like some professing Christians, like they're just—they're not very winsome or gracious or humble. But sometimes you just kind of trying to live faithfully as a Christian, and your views are labelled as narrow-minded and archaic, and you're on the wrong side of history. You have know, got to get with the times, get with the flow of culture. But right? verse thirty-seven assures you that in the end, you're going to be on the right side of history. That's what Paul says. You may uh, lose your reputation or lose certain relationships or lose your job. You, you may lose some money. You may lose your freedom one day. If, you, if Christians start being thrown into jail, you may, may lose your life. But in the end, even if you lose all those things for the sake of Christ, you can be sure that you're going to end up on the winning side. In the end, you'll be vindicated. You'll be more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. So don't sell out this blip of your life here on earth for the sake of a glorious eternity, you know? Stand firm for Christ. So in verse 38, Paul kind of drives home this truth that we're securing God's love even more with that that series of pairs. We don't have time to unpack each of those pairs uh, in any sort of detail. Really, really the, the main point comes at the end of it, which is Paul's kind of catch-all thing, which is say nothing in all creation, nothing that exists, can separate us from God's love, God's love that we see and experience in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Don't go looking for something anywhere in creation that's going to be able to cut cut you off from God's love. You're bound to him in Christ, in this unbreakable union. So can you really be sure of what's going to happen in the future? Can you be sure? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. You're completely secure in God's favour because of the work of Christ and completely secure in His love because of the great love of Christ. Now let me pray. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this uh, glorious chapter, really, Romans 8. I pray that... Uh, the things that Adam and I have said over the past few weeks have served to uh, enhance the glory of this uh, chapter. I'm conscious that it's, it's so hard. It's quite easy to just kind of mess it up and get in the way. Uh, I pray that uh, people's yeah, that our hearts and minds have been all the more captured by uh, the wonderful uh, assuring truths and comforting truths in this chapter. I pray that we'd meditate on them all the more. I pray that we'd know uh, how secure we are, know deeply and profoundly, secure in your favor because of the work of our Lord Jesus uh, and secure in your love uh, because we're bound to him in love. Amen.